0: This week, we're celebrating Intellectual Freedom, Banned Books Week, and Great Science Fiction and Fantasy. This is Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a special episode of Social Science Fiction. So this week is Banned Books Week. It's an annual event held by the American Library Association, along with other organizations and individuals from publishers to distributors to writers. And it's an event that calls attention to the dangers of censorship and celebrates intellectual freedom and freedom of speech and freedom of expression. Now, as a rule, I really try not to be politically partisan on this show. We talk about politics, we examine politics and political topics, Through science fiction and fantasy, and we examine politics from a lot of different angles, a lot of different perspectives. But for the most part, I try not to push my own political agenda or put my own political beliefs out there. I want this show to be welcoming to people of all political beliefs. However, despite my generally nonpartisan rule, I will say that I am a big believer in intellectual freedom, in freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and I am very much opposed to government censorship. And I don't think I'm really crossing a line or revealing anything shocking by saying that. I'd like to think pretty much all citizens of liberal democracies can be on board with these basic things. Freedom of speech is a good thing. Government censorship of ideas is a bad thing. And so while I, as a rule, don't take partisan positions on issues, I will come out and say I am very pro-free speech and I'm a big fan of Banned Books Week and what it's about. And so in honor of this event, I'd like to do a top five list for this week. A list of my top five recommendations of great sci-fi and fantasy books that have faced attempts to ban them, to remove them from libraries and from schools. Further, in honor of this event, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to have a special guest on the show. I'll be speaking with Deborah Caldwell-Stone, the director of the Office of Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association. She was kind enough to take the time to speak with me a little bit about banned Books Week and the work of the Office of Intellectual Freedom in general, and we had a great conversation, so that will be coming up shortly. So let's get started. Well, I knew it was going to come to this at some point. I knew when I started this show I was going to have to do some top X lists, top five, top ten, best, this or that. I think pretty much everybody that talks about or comments on nerd stuff has to do these kinds of lists, and I knew it was coming eventually, and if I am going to start doing these top five, top ten list episodes, I'm happy to make the first one for this event. Something really fun and meaningful. So let's do it. In no particular order, my top five recommendations for great science fiction and fantasy books that have faced bans or attempted bans for their content. First recommendation, 1984 by George Orwell. Now, I briefly debated putting this book on the list simply because I don't know if it truly qualifies as science fiction. There is futuristic technology, which sort of puts it in that realm, but of course, the science fiction elements are really not the point of the story. Still, it's close enough to sci-fi, and it's a classic of English literature that has faced ban attempts, so it sort of has to make the list. So why is this a recommendation? Well, 1984 is the classic story of the dangers of totalitarianism. It is the novel that gave us terms like Big Brother and Memory Hole and Thought Police. It is a novel that's beautifully written, tells a brilliant and tragic story, and if you haven't, you really need to read it simply so you can understand all the references to it in other media. Pretty much every cartoon and sitcom has made some kind of humorous reference to 1984 at one time or another. Big Brother has entered the American lexicon as the standard term for scary, oppressive government, especially government spying. So if for no other reason than to understand all the references that come out of it, it really needs to be read. And of course, given the topic of this week's episode and the discussion of censorship, 1984 really has to make the list for giving us a view of a possible terrifying future in which the government has far too much control over people's lives, what they can say, what they can read, what information they can have access to. Personally, I also always liked 1984 for its discussion of language, a topic that came up when we talked about Stranger in a Strange Land, and will probably come up in future episodes, the idea of how language can affect how we think, our ability to express different ideas. 1984 describes a government that goes to great lengths to control language, to change and morph the language its people speak specifically for the purposes of controlling them, controlling how they think, and diminishing their ability to express any kind of dissenting views. Within 1984 the idea is the government is seeking to shrink the English language, simply remove words that could be used to describe the bad things the government does, essentially making it impossible for people to express any kind of criticism of the government. They simply won't have the words that they could used to describe the terrible things that the government is doing. Which, by the way, is an idea that's been explored in other classic works of science fiction and fantasy. Something similar is described in T.H. White's The Once and Future King. This is a retelling of the King Arthur story and the version of the King Arthur legend that was largely used to inspire the Disney animated movie Sword in the Stone. And in this version of the King Arthur story in The Once and Future King, we see the young boy who will become King Arthur learning with Merlin. And in one particular lesson, Arthur is transformed into an ant briefly and goes to live with ants and become a part of their society. And he discovers essentially an Orwellian totalitarian communist society. And T.H. White in this story specifically explains how these ants have a very limited language. The only adjectives they can use to describe things are done and not done. So anything bad is not done. So if an ant is dead, it's simply a not done ant. And again, the idea is they simply don't have the language to express complex ideas and therefore can't really question or dissent from their political system. But anyway, of course, 1984 has to be on this list. Slightly science fiction-y, certainly a classic and it has faced attempts at banning in the United States. Interestingly enough, I discovered in one specific instance in 1981 in Jackson County, Florida, an individual or group attempted to have the book banned on the grounds that it was pro-communist, which is absurdly funny when you think about it. Orwell considered himself a democratic socialist, but he certainly wasn't a communist, and of course the book is nothing but criticism of Soviet-style communist government, so I don't know how you can read a book that describes the horrors of the kind of government the Soviet Union created and think, yeah, this book is telling us that communism is a good idea. So the idea is absurd, but this is the kind of criticism 1984 has faced. Number two in the list, Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Another classic of English literature. This is the story of a World War II soldier who becomes unstuck in time and thus goes on adventures, experiencing time travel, as well as at one point being abducted by aliens. Slaughterhouse-Five has faced challenges all over the country for decades now, often those seeking to ban the book cite its offensive language, its sexual content, its take on religious themes. One also suspects that, while not saying it out loud, some of these critics probably also don't like the anti-war message that is sort of the central theme of the book. Slaughterhouse-Five also gets a special place on this list for being one of the books that was banned in the landmark Supreme Court case, Island Trees School District v. Pico. This is the Supreme Court case from 1982, which essentially established that school boards cannot remove books from school libraries simply because of their content. And the background of the case is a school board in New York sought to have several books removed from the school library for various reasons. Some students challenged this ruling in court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And while the court returned sort of a split decision in my non-lawyer understanding, The decision was a bit of a mixed bag and leaves some elements of the ruling ambiguous. The end result was the court holding that while school boards have some discretion in what goes into a library, they cannot simply remove books because of their content. And so this has become an important decision in U.S. Supreme Court history, an important defense of freedom of expression. And again, Slaughterhouse-Five, one of the books that the school board was trying to remove that prompted the case. The only, in fact, sci-fi or fantasy book on that list. Number three on the list, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, this book series really needs no introduction or description. It is the classic fantasy series. It set a new benchmark for fantasy literature and gave us so many of the standard fantasy tropes that we have just accepted and take for granted today. It's fair to say without Lord of the Rings, we would not have Dungeons and Dragons or The Witcher or the Dragon Age video game series or a million other books, movies, TV shows, video games, and so on. Or at the very least, these things would be very different from what we know today. If you're a fan of fantasy fiction, you absolutely have to read The Lord of the Rings. Now, The Lord of the Rings is another book series that has faced attempted bans all over the place over the decades, oftentimes being attacked for being anti-religious. Which, by the way, is sort of a standard attack on any sort of fantasy story. Whenever some group is trying to ban a fantasy novel, usually the standard fallback is it's anti-religious, it's satanic, it promotes witchcraft and other evil things. That's usually the standard refrain from groups trying to ban these kinds of stories. Which, in the case of The Lord of the Rings, by the way, is particularly absurd given that Tolkien himself was actually a deeply and devoutly religious man. And critics and academics have noted the Catholic theme prevalent throughout The Lord of the Rings. In fact, Tolkien was a good friend of C.S. Lewis, the Christian author of the Narnia books and Christian non-fiction books. And while Lewis is generally known as being a very religious person, a man whose Christian faith inspired so much of his writing, it was in fact Tolkien who played a large part in converting Lewis to Christianity. When Tolkien and Lewis first met each other, Lewis was a committed atheist. And in In fact it was largely Tolkien who through his friendship and his debates with Lewis brought him around to reconsidering religion and brought him back into the Christian community. So the idea of attacking Tolkien and trying to ban the Lord of the Rings as being anti-religious is just particularly absurd. The man was deeply religious. Of course, have to acknowledge it's not always the religious or perceived anti-religious content of The Lord of the Rings that singles it out for attack. I also just recently learned that there have been attempts to prevent children from watching The Lord of the Rings movies in England, specifically because of the depictions of people smoking. And if you know Lord of the Rings, you know the wizards and the hobbits and the dwarves enjoy their pipes and their pipe weed. And apparently there are organizations and politicians in England who think children don't need to see hobbits smoking, apparently. That's going to give them ideas. So the Lord of the Rings movies have also faced censorship attempts in England for that. So it's not always the religion. Sometimes it's something as mundane as Sir Ian McKellen taking a drag off of a pipe. Number four on the list. The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. Now this is another book that I debated putting on the list. Not sure it really qualifies as sci-fi or fantasy. I've seen it more often classified as fitting in the genre of magical realism, which seems to apply, well, but I'd argue there are enough fantastical elements that I'm going to say yeah, qualifies as fantasy and it belongs on the list. And I simply can't resist putting this book on the list because any book that wins an author a death sentence from the leader of a government, really deserves to be on a list for Banned Books Week. That sort of reaches the pinnacle of attempted censorship. And if you're not familiar with the background of this story, in the Satanic Verses, Salman Rushdie explores Islam and Islamic themes throughout the book, and some Muslims took offense at the way Islam and Islamic figures are presented. And in response to this, Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran at the time, issued a fatwa calling for the death of Salman Rushdie for his writing of the Satanic Verses. And of course, beyond this fatwa in itself, the book has faced criticism and burnings and a attempts at banning all over the world for its discussion of religion. And so while I question whether the book technically qualifies as fantasy, it certainly deserves a place on this list for the history behind it and for the quality of the writing. Finally, number five on the list, the Harry Potter series. Now, I spent a whole episode talking about the Harry Potter series. Everyone knows Harry Potter, so once again, no need to go into the background or the details here, but suffice to say, Harry Potter is one of my favorite fantasy book series of all time, and once again, a fantasy series that has faced censorship attempts largely due to the standard accusations against fantasy literature. It's anti-religious, it's anti-Christian, it's satanic, it promotes witchcraft, which that last one is at least sort of fair. The book does have witches in it. They learn magic. This is presented It is as a good thing. Of course, that doesn't justify trying to ban the book, but at least this accusation sort of makes sense on some level. But at any rate, another great series that regularly faces censorship attempts for its content. So, those are my top five recommendations for sci-fi and fantasy books to start reading during this Banned Books Week, or anytime you're looking for something new to read. 1984, Slaughterhouse-Five, The Lord of the Rings series, The Satanic Verses, and The Harry Potter series. And further, because I can't resist, I'll just throw out a couple honorable mentions. Brave New World by Aldous Huxley for giving us what some have recently argued is probably the most likely dystopia we're going to be heading towards in the future. The Goosebumps series for being a series of books that I think pretty much any American under the age of 40 is going to remember fondly as being everywhere in elementary school and for being the bane of elementary school teachers everywhere who I know just got completely sick of having to read book reports on the same half-dozen Goosebumps books over and over and over again over the years. And finally, literally anything by Stephen King. I'm currently reading it and loving it. And basically, whatever Stephen King book you pick, someone somewhere has tried to have it banned. The man writes very dark stuff. He makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So a few honorable mentions, also books that regularly face bans or attempted bans, all worth reading. And so that's it for me monologuing this week. Now, I'm thrilled to bring on a special guest to talk about Banned Books Week, the director of the American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom, Deborah Caldwell-Stone. Thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Hi, Steve. Thanks for inviting me on. Real pleasure to be
0: here. Very thrilled to have you. And I understand, by the way, that in, in addition to being a former attorney and director of the Office of Intellectual Freedom, you also have some experience in the science fiction community. Is that right?
1: That's right, Steve. I used to do a bit of con running back in the day. I chaired WisCon for a few years, and I'm still an active con roller, though I've had a abandoned con running for the time being.
0: Oh, I'm sorry you've had to abandon it for now, but that's very cool that you, you've done that in the past, and I hope you still get to go to some cons in the future. Do you miss running cons, being a part of that?
1: We'll see. I, I think that I've begun to enjoy being able to go to panels and
0: really just treat it as
1: a relaxicon, con, you know, but we'll see.
0: <laughs> gotcha. So. Before we get into Banned Books Week, can you tell me a little bit about the Office of Intellectual Freedom? What does your office do apart from being a part of Banned Books Week?
1: The Office for Intellectual Freedom actually exists within the American Library Association to give meaning and substance to its comprehensive program addressing intellectual freedom and privacy. We include privacy because we feel that if people don't believe that they can read what they want without someone looking over their shoulder, they'll be chilled in their exercise of their right to read. When you think the government's spying on what you're looking on online or what you're taking out of the library, you're going to think twice about taking out something that might be a little edgy or controversial. So in addition to protecting the right to read, the right to First Amendment rights, and we also protect privacy. This means that we do educational programming and professional training for librarians in these areas. We do programming, and Banned Books Week is the largest example of the kind of programming and public education we do, but it's not the only example. We also do a very important thing that is the Ban Books Week, and that is challenge reporting. We are one of the few organizations that collect information and data about book challenges across the United States. And finally, one of our most important pieces of work, too, is providing support to librarians and educators across the country who are addressing efforts to remove books and resources from their libraries and from their classrooms. And we provide confidential information, reviews, support We write letters of support to school boards and library boards, urging them to retain books in the collections. We develop policies and guidelines for library professionals to use when they're running their libraries in regards to keeping access to information open. So we have a very broad brief. We do a lot of things, and as I said, Fan Book Week is probably the most visible, but we do a lot of other important work,
0: too. Right. You clearly stay busy. There's a lot going on there between the the advocacy and the training and the data collection and so on. There's clearly a lot going on there. And just to pull a few pieces out of that, I I, I like the the emphasis on privacy that seems to be su- is such a, a a vital piece of this because we can talk about how thankfully in the United States we have we have a first amendment right free speech it's thankfully very difficult for something to be outright banned but privacy seems to be such an important piece of that because it can be so difficult for an individual to exercise their freedom of speech rights their rights to speak their rights to consume information if they have that feeling that someone's looking over their shoulder and they're going to suffer some consequence for it down the road.
1: Absolutely. So that's why the American Library Association engaged so fiercely to the fight the Patriot Act back in the day. It's hard to say that it's been 20 years since the Patriot Act was adopted by Congress.
0: Yes, it's, it's been a long time since that was passed, and we're still talking about it.
1: Yeah. Well, and the good news about the Patriot Act is that it's finally been allowed to sunset this year, although there are still proposals in Congress to revive it. So that's something for interested persons to keep an eye on. See what your Congress critter is doing about <laughs> uh, revising the Patriot
0: Absolutely. And something else you mentioned a minute ago. You talked about gathering data on challenged books. What is a challenged book?
1: A challenged book is a book that the library or the school has received a formal request, and sometimes a social media post can trigger a challenge. A formal request to remove a book because someone disapproves of its content or its viewpoint or the subject matter of the book. And so sometimes the challenges are formal challenges. They actually fill out a form demanding that the library take the book off the shelf or the school remove it from the classroom. Sometimes, as they said, they'll lodge a complaint via social media and raise a public controversy without engaging with the official processes of the school board or the library board. In either case, we see that as a challenge to a book. A book is actually banned when that challenge process results in the removal of a book. I'm glad to say that in the United States, that and especially in the public libraries in the United States, that doesn't happen very often. Usually when a challenge arises to a book, a committee is formed, and they review the book and look at the library's collection development policy, and this policy is a broadly written document that identifies the kind of books and resources and information that the library makes available to the community and their rationale for collecting those books. And it's a very inclusive rationale based on trying to meet the information needs of everyone in the community to represent a whole range of viewpoints in the community. And more often than not, the book is retained in the collection. But in the process, they're able to have a meaningful conversation with the person who raises concerns about the book. Often they're able to recommend other resources that better meet the needs of the library user and explain why there's others in the community who will need access or would like to read the materials that the person has objected to and how the library, especially public libraries, has a mission of serving everyone in the community so that when I go to the library, I often see books that I disagree with, but they're there on the shelf for someone else. And I know that I'll find the books that I want to read there as well. And so it's it's kind of a little bit of a social contract there when it comes to the public library. But that's, generally how a challenge is made and how it might be treated by a public library. But I will tell you that in all honesty, there are many opportunities for the challenge to proceed without playing out in public. Sometimes an administrator will agree with the complaint and just simply take the book off the shelf. But more often than not, we're able to monitor these situations because they come up before library boards and school boards and become a matter of
0: public record. So it sounds like in an ideal world, in, in general, the, in an ideal situation, these challenges can result in sort of a, a positive process where concerns are voiced, but then there's an opportunity for education about the importance of civil society and different viewpoints being made available and so on, and the book ends up remaining on the shelf. So it can be it seems like a positive enriching process
1: it absolutely can be you know libraries are often called one of the foundational institutions for democracy because they offer the opportunity to everyone to become informed citizens informed actors in society without regard to things like age class educational background race or gender identity so it's this wonderful institution that enables everyone to participate and engage with civic society. And as a result, they take very seriously their role in advancing that mission of advancing, you know, and sustaining the democratic processes. And so when a book challenge arises, you do take this opportunity to explain the mission of the library, the role of the library, what it's there for. And ideally that does result in a good conversation between the library user and the library worker that results in an understanding about why the book is on the shelf, why it needs to stay there, and what else the library offers to the library user that can meet their information needs other than the book that they're concerned about.
0: That's excellent. So it sounds like it can be a good thing, democratic development, civil society development. My next question is, I know there are critics out there who will say, look, books rarely get banned. This, this challenge process usually doesn't result in a banning why is the American Library Association so concerned with this? It doesn't seem like it's an issue. Why are you so concerned that these things still happen if it usually ends up for the best?
1: Well, I have to tell you that while the federal government doesn't often involve itself in censorship any longer, I mean, there were a number of seminal Supreme Court cases in the 1960s that kind of took the post office and the customs officials out of the business of book banning, censorship still takes place at local levels. And that's where people access books, you know, or can have access to books or learn about books under the guidance of a caring instructor. And if you remove the books from that school, if you remove the books from that library, often for the many individuals in the community, that means there's no access to the book at all. And it also means that it's a government entity that's removing access to the books. And this is really a violation of the First Amendment. You know, the First Amendment's command is that government shall not censor the press, individual speech, the right to access speech. And so when a public library, a public school, a government agency engages in a process to remove a book from the shelf, block access to web content, stop a program that's going on at the library or school. They're actually engaging in activity that violates the First Amendment rights of those who want to access that information and that are entitled to access it through that library or school. And so that's why we're concerned about this. We want to ensure that every person has the ability to exercise their First Amendment rights in regards to access to library materials, and also their broader First Amendment rights, their rights to read and receive information, to engage in their own speech. And protecting those First Amendment rights offers a kind of umbrella that also shields other rights, the freedom of the press, the freedom of assembly, even the freedom of religious belief or non-belief, as you wish.
0: Right. So it does seem like as you dig into these things, you can see how all of this is connected together and the danger is more likely uh, a small, what seems like a smaller or a backdoor threat to these rights. We don't generally have to worry about the federal government coming in and just saying a book is banned. But as you said earlier, once privacy rights are threatened, that can have an effect on speech rights or once something happens at the local level that can trickle out and affect the First Amendment rights of large numbers of people.
1: Yeah, and particularly the First Amendment rights of young people. You know, they say, oh, you can get the book from Amazon. You don't need to get it from the library. Well, the problem with that is that you need a credit card and you need reliable internet access and you need to have an address that a book can be delivered to. And many, many young people don't have those resources available to them, at least not under their control, you know? And so you think about an adolescent who wants information about their changing body or who is exploring their sexual identity or their gender identity. And that's not stuff you often want to share with mom and dad, right? Right. And so the public library or the school library becomes their resource. But if the public library or school library is removing those books, filtering access to those websites on the grounds that some people believe that that information shouldn't be available to young people then is really impacting somebody's life you know you could actually deny access to information that can be life saving for those young people and so it's not an abstract issue it's a very real issue and one that we work to break down those barriers to access on a daily basis in our office one factoid that i will share is that we very often see book challenges brought against books that are written for adult audiences and intended for adults what we see is challenges written to books written for younger people for young you know young adults and children and uh and or adult books that are provided to young people as a part of their school curriculum and i'm thinking of classic novels contemporary literature like Beloved or The Bluest Eye or even you know, Catch-22 or The Things They Carried. All these books have been challenged in high schools and people have characterized them as inappropriate for young adolescents to read, even those preparing for college.
0: Right. Excellent point. I wasn't aware of that, but it is very telling that most of the books being challenged are things that are targeted towards younger people or that would be very popular among young people or... Books that just might help young people dealing with issues they might be dealing with.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: So, talking about Banned Books Week itself, what is the, the background of Banned Books Week and what do you do every year for it?
1: Well, Banned Books Week has its roots in a 1982 American Booksellers Association convention. At that convention, there was a discussion about books being removed from libraries and even bookstores, and so librarians, publishers, and authors got together to put together a small display of books that had been banned, and they put them in a cage, and this display, oddly enough, caused huge controversy and got a lot of press attention, and it became really apparent to Judith Krug, who was the director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom at the time, that there was a real need. To engage the public in a conversation about book censorship that was occurring, you know, as we've already talked about on the local level, that was impairing a- people's ability to read books and have access to the information that they want. And and so, as a result, there was a decision to continue highlighting book censorship on an annual basis, and that was the genesis of banned Books Week. And so Band Book Suite has been going on since 1982. We do have a coalition for Band Book Suite that's made up of publishers, authors, booksellers, librarians, and teachers, and others who are interested in the literary world. And includes, for example, the Dramatist Society has been part of the Band Book Suite coalition in the past and things like that. But every year we come together to celebrate the freedom to read and to highlight the fact that we're still experiencing censorship in the United States despite the existence of our First Amendment right to read. So each year we compile a top ten list in the spring and we use it to highlight the fact that books are being removed and challenged in libraries and schools across the country.
0: Right, and so I was looking at past years of of this top ten list. So this is your the, the top ten most challenged books every year. Yes. I was interested in this because I, I I was looking at the list for twenty nineteen, the most recent list of most challenged books, and and I noticed eight out of the ten books were challenged. It seems specifically for having LGBTQ themes. And I thought that was interesting to see so many books specifically being challenged, targeted for that reason. And I was wondering if that speaks to something about where we are politically at the culture at the moment, if maybe, you know, looking at what books are challenged at a given time, at a given era, can really tell you something about where the culture's at. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you
1: know, actually we, on the AOA website, we actually have a page that hosts all the top 10 lists going back for a couple of decades. And it is interesting to look at the changes in the top 10 lists over the years. For a large number of years, there were a lot of what we call young adult realistic novels, things like Looking for Alaska, and 13 Reasons Why, and Perks of Being a Wallflower. Those were some of the most challenged books I would say, around 2010, you know, or so. But there's been a gradual change, and it's actually been accelerating, to targeting books with LGBTQIA themes and content, particularly books that are written for young people. And what we're really struck by is that a feature of these challenges is a real effort by organized groups to frame any materials with LGBTQIA content or themes as pornographic are inherently unsuitable for minors. And when I talk about minors, I mean anybody under the age of 18. And, and so there's a real effort to keep young people from reading these books, and there's actually organized groups dedicated to preventing access to these materials in schools, in classrooms, in public libraries. Some of it is tied to protests around drag story hours both in the community, at bookstores and in libraries, but a great deal of it is just trying to erase the voices of LGBTQ people from libraries, particularly for those books that are intended for young people. So you can see some of this. George, which was number one on our most challenged list in 2019, is a book about a transgender child, and it's written for middle school. And Similarly, the picture book Prince and Knight talks about two young princes who meet and fall in love. And it's a picture book intended for, like, K-2, grade level. And again, it's been described as pornographic, even though it's absolutely age-appropriate and developmentally appropriate for young children to read.
0: I imagine it has the same themes and romance as any standard prince and princess fantasy story, just with different genders.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, the dragon is slayed. Somebody is saved, and they ride off into the sunset together. So, you know, it's described as a fractured fairy tale, but it is a fairy tale. And young children can distinguish all that. They can understand what's going on, and it's not inherently harmful to them. The publishers and the authors are careful to ensure that the books are age and developmentally appropriate, but they do highlight the fact that we live in a diverse society. And they speak to those families that are headed up by same sex couples, to children who have a gay uncle or a lesbian aunt or a transgender cousin. It helps build an understanding of the world around them and actually reflects the lived lives of individuals back to the children who are reading the books and the families that are reading the books. Right. And you- I-, I think it's. Really- essential for these kinds of materials to be available to the families and the children who want and need
0: them. Right. Well, you would you would think at a time when these issues are more prevalent, when people are are grappling with these issues politically, culturally, and so on, you would think this is precisely the time we would want more books like this out there to help people come to understand these ideas, teach their children, and so on. So just when you want material like this available is the time when you're seeing Challenges to them and attempts to remove them from libraries, from schools.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, libraries, as I said, part of their mission is to serve everyone in the community. And when we say everyone, we mean everyone. And that means making sure that the library welcomes in even the marginalized and the minority groups in the community. Libraries shouldn't be just for those with the loudest voices or for the majority everybody should be able to go to the library and find their lives reflected in the books on the shelf in the public library. But, you know, libraries have really committed to this effort to equity, diversity, and inclusion. And so so when librarians bring these books in and things, they're devoted to keeping them in place. And it's part of our work to make sure that those books stay on the shelf for those communities.
0: Absolutely. And so this year... For Banned Books Week. Obviously, you have this added hiccup of COVID 19, and it's going to be much more difficult for people to gather in public to celebrate events and so on. So, how are you dealing with this new challenge? What's new for Banned Books Week this year, thanks to COVID 19?
1: Well, this year, like so many other events, we're going virtual, and as a result, we have all kinds of online events and social media activities for people to engage in. We've also created materials for educators and library workers to use that are downloadable materials that they can share virtually online with their students and with library users. Much of this is available on the Band Books Week website. For ALA, that's ala.org slash ebooks. And there's also a listing of activities and resources for members of the Band Books Week Coalition at bandbooksweek.org. But in particular for ALA, we're doing our annual Stand for the Band readout. We're asking people to record themselves on video, reading their favorite band book and uploading that video to our YouTube channel. We also have an initiative to write to your favorite band author. Look at the list, find your favorite author, and we provided kind of electronic postcards for you to write a a note of appreciation to your band author. We will be posting a video of City Lit Theater reading excerpts from the top 10 must-challenge books for 2019. And... There's also a huge feature is we'll be hosting a national watch party for the premiere of Scary Stories, the documentary about the Bandit Challenge Scary Story series by Alvin Schwartz. And as part of the watch party, we'll be hearing from one of the producers of that, and there'll be a little bit of a Q&A. So I strongly recommend that everyone go to ala.org slash and I'm sure you'll find a, a great activity that's there for you. Many of the libraries across the country are picking up uh, these activities and were using them for their own uh, local libraries and library users. So,
0: excellent. And so, I imagine apart from the American Library Association website. People can also check out their local libraries, websites. I'm sure lots of local libraries are doing their own events as well, maybe virtual, maybe some kind of COVID, safe in-person event. But I'm sure it's worth checking out your local library as well to see what they're offering.
1: Absolutely. Uh, And in fact, I know of a local library in suburban Chicago that's created a series of really great YouTube videos for their library users. all about the First Amendment. The freedom to read and Ban Books Week, so it's worth checking out your local library website. And actually, we are compiling a page of these kinds of resources at local libraries, so you can also check out our website for that as well.
0: Excellent. So if you're if you're listening to this now, we are just beginning. We are just getting into Ban Books Week. You have plenty of time left to take part. So if any of those activities sound interesting to you, get on the website or check your local library. I encourage you to get involved and do stuff for this week. You got plenty of time left.
1: Absolutely. And actually, we celebrate Fan Books Week all year round. This is the week we highlighted, but we're always celebrating with finding an opportunity to celebrate our First Amendment freedom to read. It's so precious and it's so it's a rare bird, frankly. We're one of the few nations on earth that really preserve the right to read without limitation, and we should always celebrate the fact that we hold the freedom to read and the freedom of conscience and fiercely protect it. It is definitely under attack these days, even inside this country, and so it's. I think it's incumbent on all of us as citizens and residents in the United States to ensure that that freedom continues so that we can enjoy our intellectual freedom and to continue the practices of our
0: democracy. Absolutely. And since you bring up the continued threats, the dangers to this freedom we have, I wanted to ask you, what in your opinion is perhaps the greatest threat right now to intellectual freedom, to our freedom of speech, of press, and so on? If you had to pick something that's most troubling right now, what do you think it would be?
1: We're observing a troubling rise in intolerance for other ideas. Lack of respect for the idea that, you know, you're free to believe what you want, but that doesn't mean that you need to suppress the ideas of another person. And that's something we're seeing all the time on social media, even coming from our current administration. And actual efforts to dictate what content can be available on social media and online, suppression of all kinds of materials, whether it's based on content or political viewpoint. I I think that we've enjoyed our freedom of speech for so long, we take it for granted. And we want to claim it for ourselves, but not extend it to the other person who is maybe across the aisle or in another community. So I think that we really need To think about and cherish our freedom and understand that there is a responsibility that goes with it. So I think that that's really what we're most concerned about. There are specific initiatives that are in Congress to change some of the laws governing Internet access and content moderation. And as I said, at the top of the hour, you know, there's a possibility that the Patriot Act could be renewed. But I think some of it, uh, the greatest challenge of all right now is encouraging the understanding among everyone that we have to defend the freedom for others as well as for ourselves or else we might all lose it.
0: Absolutely, thank you. So, I hate to end on a dark, ominous note about the threats to democracy and freedom of speech and so on. So, just to, for the sake of ending on a, a more positive note, since we're talking about Banned Books Week and I'm talking about science fiction fancy fantasy books that often get challenged or banned, do you have any book recommendations for us? They need not be science fiction or fantasy, but any recommendations for people to read during this week or going forward?
1: I have to say that right now, let me say that my choice of favorite fan book often shifts over time. And right now, I, I recommend The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. I think it's a, an absolutely stunning work that allows you to walk in the shoes of another person. And is just emotionally wrenching. And I have to tell you, it has a lot of meaning for the young people who read it. I've seen young men in high school cherish this book like it was a diamond because it reflects their lives. It speaks so truthfully about their experience, and I think it's a very meaningful book. But as far as science fiction and fantasy books, you know, there's the old reliables on our list. You know, Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World, the Harry Potter series. Hunger Games, all of them have been challenged over time. And, you know, as we've talked about earlier, the, the height of challenges against these books often has been in the past when they were a book of their time, you know, a popular book, a book that is wanted is the book that's most often challenged. But I think that you know, if I had to identify just one right now, it would be absolutely true diary Part-Time Indian.
0: That's excellent. Thank you very much for those recommendations. I, I can never get over the irony of people trying to ban Fahrenheit 451. It is, it's, it's astounding to me. But thank you for all of those recommendations. You're
1: welcome. I actually find it interesting about Fahrenheit 451 because, as you know, Bradbury said it wasn't about censorship. It was about changes in society uh, and a society that no longer valued books or learning and turned to, you know, cheap entertainment.
0: Right. There's so much in that book about people just staring at their TV screens on their walls all day.
1: Yeah. And so if you think about it, we, you know, it's very reflective of our current times, you know, less value for the literary pursuits and, and more staring into the screen, but, On the other hand, what's on the other side of the screen could be a great novel. So we probably shouldn't judge it on that basis. But, you know, definitely an interesting twist
0: on the issue of censorship and how a society changes under censorship. I think that about covers it. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we wrap it up? Just that I encourage everyone to
1: visit our website. I'm sure that there is a fan books week activity that you or your family can join. ALA.org forward slash the book. Excellent. And there's, you know, and particularly the scary stories watch party might be great fun for families to join on October 2nd. I think that, especially for folks who are interested in fantasy, science fiction, and horror, it would be a, a really fun event.
0: That sounds great. I I, I think I, I will probably be checking that out myself. That sounds like a, a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Director Caldwell Stone, Director of the Office of Intellectual Freedom for the American Library Association. I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to speak to me, speak to the listeners. This was excellent. Well,
1: thank you for inviting me i I really enjoyed our time, and anytime you'd like to have a talk about intellectual freedom
0: banned books please call on me i i will most certainly take you up on that offer i appreciate it and my my pleasure having you on today thank you so much thank you
1: steve
0: hey everybody thanks for listening and again a very special thanks to deborah caldwell stone the director of the office of intellectual freedom at the american library association Thank you for speaking to me today about Banned Books Week and the work of the Office of Intellectual Freedom. And again, I encourage all of you listening to get involved with Banned Books Week, to check out the American Library Association's website, take part in some of the events that they're offering, check out what your local library is doing, and further, if you're financially able to, consider donating to the cause. If you go to the Office of Intellectual Freedom's website, at the very top of the page, you will see a link to donate to the work that they do. So consider that as well if you are able. And as always, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you're liking and disliking about the show. Any critiques, criticisms, and so on. What other sci-fi or fantasy books do you recommend for Banned Books Week? What Band Books Week events are you considering taking part in? So as always, you can contact me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at Social underscore Sci underscore Fi, and you can email me at social science fiction show at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Please consider subscribing and reviewing. New episode every Tuesday. Starting next week, we celebrate October with a series of Halloween-themed episodes. See you then.